This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Now there is, it needs to be said, a distinction between Jesus, the historical person who walked around in Israel 2,000 years ago, and the Christ Eon. Those are not the same thing. Jesus was a man... A mere man, according to the Gnostics. But he was a man on whom the spirit, the Christ Eon, the spiritual Christ Eon, descended. Jesus was walking along one day and zap! The Christ Eon descended on him. Just for a while. He descended on Jesus from the point of his baptism to just before, uh, to, to the cross, but before he died. So the eon descends upon the man Jesus from the baptism to the from Christ's baptism to the cross. Now they're very quick to say that the Christ eon did not die on the cross; only the man Jesus died on the cross. You see, the, the Christ eon is a spirit; he can't be killed. He can't die. But the man Jesus could. And it's very clear as this develops that if he didn't die, then there's no resurrection. So the Gnostics kick out any idea of the resurrection. Now that's one Gnostic scenario about who Jesus was. A mere man on whom descended the Christ Eon. Other Gnostics don't necessarily make the distinction between Jesus and the Christ Eon. What they say, this is version 2, is that Jesus, the heavenly Eon, came to earth, but he only appeared to be a material being. He looked like a regular person, but he wasn't really. He just looked like. He appeared to be a human, a material human being, but he was not. The Christ Eon had no human nature, only a spiritual nature. Therefore, his suffering on the cross was all apparent, not real. His resurrection was apparent, not real, because he never died. Now, some of you will notice that this is what we call a docetic view. D-O-C-E-T-I-C. A docetic view of Christ. Doceto comes... Uh, docetic is a Greek word, dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. And so this is called a docetic view of Christ. Christ only appeared. He seemed to be human, but he was not. Of course, the rationale for this kind of, of conception of Christ is that 
They don't want him because he's so close to the abyss. And since he's spiritual, they don't want him to have any contact with something that's evil, namely a body. Anything human. He's not, he doesn't want any to be connected. The Gnostics don't want to connect Jesus, the, the Christ eon, with any kind of body or material stuff because that's all evil. And Christ's mission, why did he descend? Why did the Christ eon come to earth? Certainly not to atone for sin, but basically to deliver that spiritual aspect of man from his bodily captivity, from its bodily captivity. In every human being, there is a spiritual side, a spiritual dimension. And Jesus came to help that spirit escape from the evil clutches of a human body and then float back to the playroom. So, the mission of the Christ eon is not to atone for sin, but to liberate the spirit that is imprisoned in the body of human beings. And how does this take place, this, this liberation? Well, the deliverance of the spirit from material body comes by Gnosis, this special knowledge. And so the job of the Christ Eon, the way he delivers is by imparting this special gnosis, this special knowledge to a select circle of persons. Okay, just one quick little note too about the Holy Spirit. Uh, generally, the Holy Spirit was seen as a lesser eon who assisted Christ in all of his efforts. At any rate, what we find here is that the Christ eon liberates the spirit from the body and they go to heaven. And then the final great redemptive act of the Christ eon is with regard to Sophia. I've already said this. She feels sorry for what she has done. And the Christ Eon shows mercy to Sophia, brings her back to the Pleroma, and then marries her in a great act of sacrifice. And so the highest Eon unites with the lowest Eon. And that brings harmony to the heavenlies. Yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> Has it happened yet? Uh, <laughs> I don't know uh, if it has or not. So, the Christ Eon shows mercy and restores the Pleroma to harmony. And when the, when the spirit is liberated from the body of a human, it floats up to the Pleroma and encounters this great harmony. All is well. They have a doctrine of man as well. They divide human beings into three categories. The pneumatic, the psychic, and the hylic. Can you see that? Spell it. The pneumatics, the psychic, and the hylic. The pneumatics... <laughs> the pneumatics are the spiritual ones... Those are the ones who have this Gnostic enlightenment. They are the ones who, 
at death, their spirit is liberated from their evil body and it floats back to the harmonious pleroma. These are the few, the chosen few. The psychics are those who do not attain gnosis, this special knowledge, but they do attain pistis, or faith. P-I-S-T-I-S. That's a Greek for the word faith. Uh, and these are, the Gnostics generally ascribed this faith to the Orthodox Christians. The Orthodox Christians, according to the Gnostics, were psychics. They didn't quite attain full enlightenment, full Gnostic enlightenment, but they did attain faith. And the way the Gnostics looked at the Christians is that they were not able to rise above blind, mere faith to the true gnosis that they had. So the Christians come up a little short. And so what happens to them at death? Well, the psychics, most of whom are Christians, they do not attain to the high pleroma. They don't get to the, to the place where the abyss and its eons reside. But neither do they go to eternal torment. They go to a middle world of some sort. So they, it's, it's, and it's not a, a, an absolutely a bad place. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. No. And then the Hylix. Those are the carnal people, the fleshly types. Those people who, uh, in whom gross sensuality rules. And at death, they are subjugated to eternal torment. So you're clear about the three types of people. Well, you know, one of the things that's characteristic of this generally is it's sort of a a, 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 a predestinarian sort of, of a, a view, a radical sort of a determinism uh, that seems to be implicit in some of this. That people are sort of chosen for these three categories. Uh, so that, that's one of the comments that, that one of the, the persons I read pointed out, is that there's a, a, a determinism implicit in all of this. Jim. Um, were they were they manics then? Did, uh, were they ascetics? Did they stay away from you know worldly fleshly things? Well, I'm going to comment on that. Some some did and some didn't. So I'll get that in just a moment. Let me summarize now the theological some of the key points here for you. One of the key things to appreciate is that the Gnostics distinguish the Creator of this world from the Supreme God. Jehovah is not the supreme God, in other words. The second thing to please bear in mind is this implicit dualism between good and evil, spirit and matter. And some of the Gnostics tended toward a descetic view of Christ. The majority tended that way. And as a result, uh, one of the cardinal orthodox doctrines of Christianity, namely the resurrection is, is effectively denied. 
the distinction between the creator of this world from the supreme God. So in other words, since Jehovah is the creator of this world, according to the Gnostics, he is not the supreme God. My wife says, as I was talking to her about all this, she says, Gnosticism is nasty. G-N-A-S-T-Y. Did you see that on there? That's from my wife. Could be. What does Carolyn James say about this? <laughs> yeah. The middle ground were for the psychics. Well, saved, there are two categories of saved. Uh, only, only the third group are really punished and suffer torment. Hylix. Right. And then the ones who really get the ultimate blessing, the pneumatics. And those... That's right. Right. There's some sort of this neutral third middle ground. Okay, just some final comments about the, the Gnostic practices. Uh, there are two uh, developments in Gnosticism. Some Gnostics became very, very ascetic. That is to say, they wanted nothing to do with uh, sensuality or matter. All that was very evil, so they were very, very rigorous in denying the body in every way. They <laughs> tended to, yes. <laughs> But they abhorred the body because it, 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 was, it was flesh and it was, it was evil as far as they were concerned. Uh, they, they refrained from sexual intercourse. Uh, they refrained from certain kinds of foods. All kinds of rules were laid out for them. But all of it was this, this sort of self-hatred uh, almost that you find evident in the ascetic Gnostics. Uh, they were uncomfortable in this world, a world ruled by the demiurge. Uh, they, they felt uncomfortable in this kind of world. But then there was also the very opposite reaction by some other groups of Gnostics. I think these particularly were those who lived in Egypt. They embraced this principle that sensuality can be overcome only by indulging in it. Got that? Sensuality can be overcome only by indulging in it. And as a result, well, I can you can guess. There were no sense of there's no sense of morality. Uh, in fact, some of them had uh, worship services in which there was great debauchery. So uh, the way they dealt with this problem is by indulging in sensuality. Just generally uh, Go ahead. Was it this group that said that the uh, material world could not influence the spiritual world, so it didn't matter what I did, that uh, the material world would affect my spiritual Yeah. Well, I think the fact that they indulged in these kinds of things in order to show they, they had conquered uh, the sensual, that to engage in it was, was to, to somehow conquer it. I've, I mean, the logic here escapes me, frankly. But uh, this, this was, was their kind of thinking, that they could conquer it. Uh, to indulge in it uh, was a sense of victory over it. There you have it. Okay. Those are the, the Gnostic theology. 
And these folks uh, were in existence in, in the second century and beyond. Uh, these are some of the people that the Christians had to deal with and had to come up with answers against. Uh, you can imagine that uh, this creates all kinds of problems. It can be terribly confusing because there are certain kinds of things that at least evoke certain Christian kinds of thinking. The idea of a fall, the idea of a good God, uh, the idea of this demiurge, kind of this semi-bad guy. I mean, there are certain kinds of things. So if, if you're a, a new Christian and you're, these ideas are coming at you right and left, there is an opportunity for confusion, to say the least. And this is one of the one of the key, uh, key things that that complicates the life of the church in the second century, the Gnostics. Okay, I want to mention two other, in some ways, uh, very very serious challenges, perversions to Christianity. Uh, I'm trying to spend too much time on them, but I feel a need to at least mention these two. The two are Marcion, the next one are the Montanists. Marcion, up here. His date, he dates, again, 2nd century, died apparently around 150-160 A.D. Marcion is significant for, for a number of reasons, but one of the important reasons why he's important is that he was one of the most influential heretics of the 2nd century. So he is someone with whom we must contend. Now, some scholars today, uh, some scholars in the past, I should say, are they think that Marcion, they categorize him as a Gnostic. But most, I would say that a significant number of modern scholars uh, are a little bit dubious as to whether or not he really rightly fits under the category of Gnostic because he has a number of features to his own thought that don't really fit in in any way with what I've described as Gnostic. So there is debate as to whether or not Marcion is a Gnostic. He was born uh, in a city called Pontus on the port of the Black Sea. And I dare say there's only one of us here who's ever been to the Black Sea. Have you been there? That's right. <laughs> he was the son of a bishop, of a bishop of a, chur of a Christian uh, church. Uh, also come from a very wealthy family, Marcion. But Marcion was excommunicated from the Christian church by his own father. Now, we don't know the specific reason. Uh, people speculate, well, he was obviously articulating her heretical ideas. Others have speculated that uh, there was some rumor that he had seduced a young lady. And the father, who was the bishop, Again, a bishop is not a bishop over a diocese, but the bishop of a single local church. And apparently his father excommunicated him for either heretical ideas or for some immorality. Uh, again, that is, these, none of these, neither of these are absolutely confirmed. Well, like it seems like all heretics, Marcion eventually turns up in Rome. And there, Marcion joins the Christian church and participates for a while. In fact, 
he, because he is wealthy, he gives lots and lots of money to the Roman church. So he has some status. But then he comes under the influence of a man named Serdo, C-E-R-D-O, who seems to have had some Gnostic ideas. This is one of the reasons why older scholars uh, want to classify Marcion as a Gnostic. At any rate, Serdo seems to have influenced Marcion in some measure. And as a result, uh, Marcion goes around and starts articulating these, these ideas of Serdo in the Christian church, and he is again excommunicated. His father excommunicates him from his own church, and now in Rome, in one, look, I think it's 144 A.D., Marcion is excommunicated. So what does Marcion do? Twice excommunicated? He goes out and he founds his own church. That way he can't get excommunicated, usually. So he founded his own church, and in many ways, in terms of liturgy and basic organization, it follows the same basic pattern of the Christian church. Question? Okay. Marcion was a successful heretic. Uh, according to Justin Martyr, his ideas were widely disseminated uh, throughout the Roman Empire in one fi- by 150 A.D. We see evidences of Marcion's views in North Africa, in Egypt, Cyprus, and Syria. So when I say successful, what I mean is his ideas seem to fan out from Rome. And there are significant numbers. Well, what did Marcion believe? Well, in terms of his theology, he, like the Gnostics, believes in a sort of dualism. Uh, He talks about the demiurge of the Old Testament, an inferior creator god, not unlike the Gnostic view. The Demiurge is, to his thinking, uh, represents the God of the Old Testament, an inferior creator God. And then he says there is a supreme God that he associates with the New Testament. So Marcion, and this will show up again and again, he pits the Old Testament against the New Testament the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. One is good and one is not so good. For Marcion, the creator God, the demiurge of the Old Testament, was harsh, inconsistent, and essentially wicked. Why did Marcion make such statements about the creator God of the Old Testament? Well, here are some of the points he makes as to why he thinks the creator God of the Old Testament is harsh and wicked. First, whose fault is it that sin entered the world? It's the God of the Old Testament because He created Adam. And Adam is the one who sinned. So God is blamed, this this God of the Old Testament is blamed for the entrance of sin into the world. That's one strike against the Old Testament God. He also says that the Old Testament God is ignorant. And the basis for this judgment is that in Genesis, when Adam had fallen, God is pictured as saying, Adam, where are you? 
And so Marcion says, well, God must have been ignorant because he didn't know Adam where Adam was. So God is showing his limitations in terms of knowledge. He also says that the Old Testament God was contradictory. As an example, he says that after the Ten Commandments, where God had ordered, uh, had said that all images are forbidden, the same God ordered Moses to set up a brazen serpent. He says that's, that's contradictory. That's inconsistent. The true good God is not like that. This is only characteristic of the Old Testament harsh God. So the Old Testament God is responsible for evil. He is ignorant or limited in his knowledge. He's contradictory. And the fourth comment is he says that God is severe, overly harsh. The God of the Old Testament is the one who said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And for Marcin, that is too harsh, too severe. And so he rejects that God. He also blames God for creating insects. Uh, and that's another strike against God. Just thought I'd throw that one in. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's the Old Testament God. What about the New Testament God? Well, for Marcy, the New Testament God is all good. You see, the God of the New Testament is the one who sent Christ to set matters right between God and man. So the New Testament picture of God is good. And the God of the New Testament sent Christ, number one. Number two, is loving and always forgiving. He forgives sinners always. Doesn't have to, but He does. He is loving and forgiving. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can see why, incidentally, if this is a picture of, of the true God, then you can see why His ideas spread all over the place. Because his God is sort of a Santa Claus who's always benign and never looking or holding grudges. Who's that? Well, he identifies Jesus as the Christ. He's not... That's why it's, it's, one hesitates to call him a Gnostic because he doesn't make... He doesn't separate Jesus from Christ eon. He doesn't talk about him in that language. He identifies Christ with the historic Christ who represents the good God of the New Testament. Let's look for a moment at his Christology. Just like he distinguishes the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament, he also distinguishes between the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. He distinguishes that promised Messiah from the Messiah who actually came in the New Testament. Marcion, in his Christology, distinguishes the promised Old Testament Messiah from the actual Messiah who came in the New Testament. The Old Testament Christ, says Marcion, that was promised, never has come, has not yet come at any rate. 
But the New Testament Christ, the one who actually came, is a universal Savior who brought wonderfully good news, namely the forgiveness of sin and the rejection of the Old Testament law. Jesus represents to him as the one who rejected the Old Testament God. That's the way he understands Jesus. Jesus is the one who turned away, rejected the Old Testament law. And Jesus only comes to give forgiveness. So both sides need to be talked about. On the one side, He forgives sin. On the other side, He turns away from and rejects the Old Testament. One other important aspect of Marcion's Christology is he does take a descetic view of Christ. I need to back up here. He does, he does take a more descetic view. Uh, he denied that Christ was born of a woman and that he had a full material body. He denied that Christ, that the New Testament Christ, was born of a woman, that he had, that he had a material body. He affirms that the New Testament Christ suddenly descended from heaven as an adult. There was no growth, maturity here. He descended as an adult. And again, you find this same sort of Gnostic idea that the reason he does not want to identify Jesus, uh, the historical Christ, uh, in a purely human sense, the way he wants to keep him descetic, that he appeared to be human but was not really human, is because matter is evil. He still buys into that basic Gnostic idea that matter is evil. So the New Testament Christ, since he is not evil, he's always forgiving and always good. Therefore, he is not, does not have a material body. With regard to Scripture, Marcion's view of Scripture, we'll say more about this in another context. But just to mention that while he rejected the religion of the Old Testament, he did see that the Old Testament gave him important information. So that it's, it, he rejects the religion, but it does provide him with basically reliable information. It has value as an historical document. The New Testament, well... Even that is not uh, entirely happy, a happy situation for Marcion. He feels like that only Paul really understood the New Testament Christ and the God of the New Testament. And so basically he rejects everything, even some, some of Paul's writings, but he keeps, what he does is he creates his own Bible. He compiles his own Bible, and it's composed of Ten epistles of Paul and an abridged version of Luke. And that's Marcion's Bible. So Paul only is the one who understood Christ, and so he picks ten epistles of Paul and then an abbreviated version of Luke for his own Bible. Incidentally, 
when Marcion composed his own Bible, that had some positive results for the Orthodox Church. It compelled the Church, in view of this popular heretic's own Bible version, it compelled the Orthodox Church to think through and to begin the formation of its own canon. So Marcion was a negative impetus to the Orthodox Church to get its act together and to decide and to begin deciding what the New Testament canon was. What are the authoritative books of the New Testament? So Marcion has a very crucial role to play in the formation of the New Testament canon. One other thing to note is that Marcion, he said that the Old Testament creator had managed to deceive the apostles so that they did not understand the true message of the New Testament Christ. And that's why he rejects their writings by and large, with the exception of Paul. The apostles, to his mind, were essentially Judaizers. They were too reflective, too much, too enamored with Old Testament kind of thinking, too infected with Old Testament thinking. And the Old Testament God had deliberately confused them so that they did not clearly understand the New Testament. Finally, Marcion is a strict ascetic. Uh, He had his followers, they were supposed to refrain from marriage. In fact, he only allowed married persons to be baptized upon the promise, taking a vow of sexual abstinence. Another example is that he forbade the drinking of wine. So in his, in his Eucharist celebration, such as it was, there was no wine. And we go on and on about how strict he was. Uh, some people have doubted the earlier accusation that I mentioned that he'd had an affair, uh, and that's why he was excommunicated by his father. Some have doubted that because he is so strict about uh, sexual relations. He forbids it absolutely, and all of his followers were supposed to fall in line. At any rate, particularly this picture of Christ as all-loving and all-forgiving proved to be very, very attractive. And that made Marcion a real threat to the early Christian church. Okay, we had popped through Marcion. And now you want to look at Montanism, another major uh, group that with whom the Christians had to deal. Montanism emerged in Asia Minor, a place called Phrygia, which is uh, up to where is modern-day Turkey. In the late 2nd, early 3rd century, it was called by some the Phrygian heresy. Now, I don't have Phrygian up there, do I? P-H-R-Y-G-I-A-N. Phrygian. P-H-R-Y-G-I-A-N. It refers to Phrygia, northern Turkey, 
called the Phrygian heresy. Montanism derives from its founder and first prophet, Montanus. M-O-N-T-A-N-U-S. Now what's interesting about this fellow is that before he converted to Christianity, and I say that in quotes here, he had been a priest in an ancient cult called the Cult of Cybele. The Cult of Cybele. Now this was a cult which was noted for its ecstatic religious practices. Now, as a Christian, in quotes, Montanus claimed direct ecstatic revelations from God. And so the question that scholars have wrestled with from the very beginning was this. Is the truth of the matter that Montanus was simply... Uh, reinventing some of the basic practices of this cult and introducing them into Christianity. Had he incorporated a pagan notion into Christianity? Because he claimed, he continued to have these ecstatic experiences in which he claimed were direct revelations from God and therefore everybody who heard them were under obligation to obey. Ecstatic, yeah. There, well, there, this gets into the... There's a little bit of a debate. But I'll, I'll be real quick about it. Ecstatic in this sense, we're talking about an ecstatic prophet. That's a person who loses consciousness. He is completely unaware of what he is saying. Uh, one of the debates that the Orthodox people used against Montanus is to say that the Old Testament prophets never lost their, their faculties when they were making a prophecy about the future or foretelling or proclaiming the truth of God to the people. But he is very, very different because he loses his control in when he's in a state of prophetic utterance. Uh, yeah, basically he does. I'm, I'm going to read you a couple of the prof, uh, uh, prophetic things he said. But yes, he claims to be the the mouthpiece of God, and that he completely is neutral in this process. And he loses consciousness. Uh, that was one of the debates going on, one of the claims. In fact, the Orthodox folk claimed he was demon-possessed because apparently his eyes rolled back and, you know, he would do his thing. Uh, but he lost consciousness in contrast to what the Old Testament picture was that these Christians, Orthodox Christians said, who, who never lost their mental faculties as they were giving prophetic voice to uh, certain ideas. So, Montanus is a very different chap coming along with the church. I've used, did I, I mention this word here? This is a good word. Somnambulistic. Oh, yeah. Now, that's a word that means sleepwalking in effect. And it connotes the idea of losing consciousness and yet engaging in certain kinds of activities, even though you're unconscious in doing those. Somnambulistic. 
You like that, huh? <laughs> well, Montanus himself claimed to be the mouthpiece of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And with him, he had two associates, two female prophetesses, Priscilla and Maximilla. Priscilla and Maximilla. Do I smell the names? Yes. And these two ladies left their husbands, left their families to follow Montanus. There were, as you might imagine, charges of sexual immorality between Montanus and his two associates. Uh, we don't know if they're true or not. They called themselves, these followers of Montanus, the spiritual Christians. And everybody else, they were the carnal Christians, the fleshly Christians. And some scholars have seen little evidences here of Gnosticism. The pneumatics were the spiritual ones and the hylics were the carnal ones. That it, it, it looks as if perhaps Montanus had incorporated some Gnostic distinctions in his own view. Well, here are a few things uh, uttered by Maximilia, his associate. Her prophecy is this, quote, There will be wars and revolutions... That, that's one of her, her prophecies. Another one is, she says, After me there will be no more prophecy but the end. She was predicting the imminent end of the world. This is Maximilia. Priscilla, listen to Priscilla. She says, quote, Appearing as a woman clothed in a shining robe, Christ came to me. He put wisdom into me and revealed to me that this place, Pepuza, which is a city in Phrygia, this place is sacred, and here Jerusalem will come down from heaven. Uh, I'll elaborate on that in a few minutes. Montanus himself is reported to have said in a state of uh, ecstasy, quote, It is I, the Lord God Almighty, who am present, who is present in a man. And then he says also, Do not hope to die in bed nor in languishing fevers, but seek martyrdom so that he who suffered for you may be glorified. That's also another distinctive feature of the Montanists. They seek martyrdom. They certainly don't fear it. Uh, contemporaries, uh, Christian, Orthodox Christians, considered Montanus a heretic and that he was motivated by a desire to have a high rank in the church. Now, here's how it worked, apparently. He felt that as a, a prophet of God, he had a higher rank than the bishop. And therefore, he had a, had a higher a rank and a, and a greater role in a local church. And so there was some concern that what he was really trying to do was to muscle in on the bishops by claiming to be a prophet of God. As I say, Christians generally condemned the Montanists. Uh, eventually, he went to Rome, and there he was excommunicated by the bishop of Rome in 177 A.D. 
Now, one of the things that uh, makes Montanism especially interesting is that it had a very famous convert, namely Tertullian. Now, Tertullian, although he ba embraced the basic tenets of Montanism, he never actually left the Orthodox Church, although he did defend Montanism. So, that gives him that that is, is a very significant fact. So, what are some of the basic ideas of the Montanists? Well, in terms of the basic theology, they seem to agree on basic the basic tenets of Christianity. They believe essentially in the in the deity of Christ. They don't buy into any of the Gnostic distinctions between the Demiurge and and the Abyss and Sophia. All of that is absent from the Montanist theology. So the distinctive features of what they teach are one they see, they take sort of a, a distinctive view of the development of redemptive history. According to Montanists, there was in the Old Testament the dispensation of the Father. And that gave way in the New Testament to the dispensation of the Son. So there's this unfolding of redemptive history. The Old Testament was the, was the dispensation of the Father. The New Testament was the dispensation of the Son. And now, that is after the apostolic period, is the unfolding of the dispensation of the Spirit. So that is a, a distinctive feature of Montanism, this threefold uh, dispensations, these threefold dispensations. A second distinctive feature, one that got them into trouble as far as most of the Orthodox were concerned, is they affirm the continuing validity of the miraculous gifts, most particularly the gift of prophecy. Now, let me comment here. Uh, clearly there were those, there were prophets in the Old Testament who spoke the words of God to the people. There were prophets in the Old Testament who uh, foretold the future. So there's little doubt that those kinds of prophets exist in the Old Testament. There is the prophets are mentioned in the New Testament era. In the second century, one finds that some of the early Christian writings do still refer prophets. Now the one thing that's very interesting about almost all of the references to the prophets is the fact that there were abuses attached to prophets. The problem and the context in which prophets are mentioned is in res with respect to those uh, to distinguish true and false prophets. In the Didache, for example, you may have remembered this. Uh, there are some careful uh, 
things that the Orthodox Church ought to bear in mind in order to distinguish between true prophets and false prophets. There was clearly, it seemed, abuse with regard to the, the so-called gifts of prophecy. And uh, so the Didache, the writer of the Didache, feels a need to try to tell the people how to distinguish the true from the false. In Ignatius's letters, some of which you've read, some have argued that Ignatius would have been uh, somewhat an, uh, <coughs> um, antagonistic toward uh, the prophets because he so stressed Episcopal supremacy, the supremacy of the bishop of a local church, that that really didn't leave room for a prophet. Uh, one example of this may be seen in the sense that he restricts the celebration of the, of the Eucharist, Ignatius does, to the bishop. That is something that is not allowed by anyone but the bishop, and certainly not the prophets. And so it seems there's really no place in the Ignatian conception of the church for this outsider to come in to the church. So some have argued that Ignatius is probably somewhat negative with regard to the prophets. Uh, one finds in the Shepherd of Hermas as well uh, that there are, there's a problem between those people claiming to be prophets who were not. And the, and the Shepherd of Hermas delineates ways to distinguish true prophets from false prophets. So there is a problem uh, in the early church about this particular office of, of the, perfect, the, the prophet. Uh, and it seems that the Montanists were strong advocates of saying that this office still continues. And it, it, it would appear that the Orthodox, while not absolutely rejecting uh, the, the office of prophecy early on here, are increasingly skeptical about people who claim to be prophets. And you find toward the third century, you don't find uh, so many people claiming this office. It seems to fade more or less from the scene. Bear that in mind as we talk about this. So, the Montanists are coming along and they are stressing the abiding validity of this particular office, particularly prophecy. That is distinctive about the Montanists. They also permitted, and someone was asking about this earlier, is they permitted female clergy, the Montanists did. They were less concerned with the institutional church and with its uh, program for ordination or qualification for ordination. For the Montanists, the only qualification they needed was being endowed by the Holy Spirit to have these ecstatic utterances. That was proof enough, qualification enough for the Montanists. And so you find two very early on uh, female priests, if you will, uh, in the early church. One other thing to mention is they tended to be Kiliasts or millenarians. They believed in Christ's imminent return. And there's one little twist to their millenarianism. 
They believed that Christ, when He comes, He will establish His earthly kingdom not at Jerusalem, but in the small Phrygian village of Pepuza. P-E-P-U-Z-A. And guess who came from this little small village? Montanus himself. And so that's, that's their special twist on the second coming of Christ. That he will establish his, the capital of his earthly kingdom in Pepuza. And finally, they were very, very strongly ascetic as well. Although they may have permitted women to act as clergymen, they forbade women to wear any sort of ornamental clothing. Another sort of interesting feature, and I, and I sort of alluded to this earlier, is they said that Christians should not flee persecution, but rather stay and face it, even to the point of martyrdom. So there is this sense in which the Montanists embraced martyrdom. Another feature is they prohibited all second marriages, even in the event of one spouse dying. Once is all you get, say the Montanists. And they were also very, very strict when it came to those Christians the so-called lapsed Christians. Under the persecution from the state, some Christians lapsed and they went ahead and sacrificed to the emperor, for example. But then they felt really badly about what they had done. They said they were sorry, they repented, and sought re-entry into the church. The Montanists said they are to be excluded absolutely. The Donatists are a little bit later, but... Similar same similar idea. What happened to Montanism? Well, after the third century, we don't know a lot. There's just not a lot of information about this particular movement as it went on. There are references as late as the sixth century referring back to an earlier movement. But as to whether or not this movement continued much beyond the third century is is doubtful. Oh yeah, we're talking second century. Right. So yes, yes, these things were going on. And then after the persecution subsided, then someone wanted to come back. That's right. And this was part of that. Yeah, it was. It was this. This was going on. Montanism was during the time of the persecutions. That's right. Uh, it's a very harsh, very rigid kind of view. Uh, we're not terribly tolerant of people who were weak in times of, of stress and persecution. Okay. Some, I need to look at it myself. I can't say it. Somnambulistic. That's a, that's a good word to describe the kind of ecstatic prophecy that uh, the Montanists engaged, in which they engaged. And the idea is to stress that they lost consciousness. It's much like sleepwalking. There is still activity going on, but the mind is asleep. The mind is in neutral. And so that word connotes that as opposed to 
the Old Testament prophets whose, whose mental faculties were still fully functional as they were uttering prophecies. They, didn't, they weren't sleepwalking. They were conscious. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.